Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward and freedom will be defended. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. And again, another week and another incredible guest. And I'm making the brave decision to head north to speak to, you know, the amazing policing abilities of those that um, carry out the, the, the duties of the Office of Constable in Scotland, which, you know, has a very close affinity with my heart. My my mother's family are from Kilmarnock, so it's been a, a place which uh, I've great loved and, and been very fond of for many, many years. And it's not a place where I've explored yet the intricacies of policing, because it'll be no different, but I'm sure there are elements that we're all fascinated to hear about. And my next guest, recently retired, 28 years and three months of service, retiring at the rank of superintendent, and has completed uh, recently a doctorate. So Dr. Martin Gallagher, retired superintendent, welcome to the podcast Protect and Serve. How are you this morning? I'm good, Ollie, and thanks very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. No, thank you ever so much for joining me. You know, And I always say at the start of these podcasts, we want to really rewind back the clock to the start of sort of the decision-making processes to join the police and ask quite simply, why policing? Oh, that's a good one. Um, so back then, I think I was asked that question a long time ago, I sort <laughs> of remember. And I think I said, I don't <laughs> fancy working with spreadsheets. I think they were coming out of my ears by the end. But they certainly weren't when I was a young man. 
Um, and I wanted to do something, and it might sound cliched, but it's true. I wanted to do something that had an effect and made a difference. So um, post-university, it was the, the right decision for me. I had initially thought of going to the Met because I was away from home. But for that very short space of time, they were only recruiting from the home counties. I'd liked Edinburgh Castle when I was a boy. Didn't know anyone there in Edinburgh. And I just pumped in the application and, and ended up in Lothian and Borders. So can we talk about that sort of family history and the dynamics of Scotland and the difference? Because I've interviewed people right across the, the you know, the UK, but not yet on Scotland. What's What makes Scotland so different and unique and, and sort of your family heritage from that part of the world? OK, so so with the name Gallica, for those from from Scotland, they'll know that that's an Irish diaspora mm, name. So mm. typically in the, the west coast of Scotland, eh, but spread out now. And eh, my family were there, were based there when I was, eh, was a, when I was a boy. So I'm from Glasgow. Um, Scotland's very much, diff, you know, very different if you, if you go around it. So Glasgow and Edinburgh are very different sites. Very, very different cities in a lot of ways, policing um, and culturally, you know. Uh, and then up north, again, Highlands, um, Inverness, and, and all the, 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 the smaller towns up there, very different again. So it's it's a diverse country for one that's probably quite small in terms of population, mm. excuse me, mm-hmm. but it's got some some factors that go back for hundreds of years. I mean, I mentioned Irish diaspora piece, there's more orange walks in Scotland, in the west coast of Scotland, than there is in Northern Ireland. You know, so wow. just to give you that, that picture, it's a, it's, it's, it's a diverse country, I think is the way to express it. So when we make this decision to pursue this vocation of policing, one which is incredibly complex, requires police officers to have a variety of different skill sets, but equally, when we make that decision and we tell family, there's often a reaction, sometimes positive, well, no, most of the time positive, sometimes negative in terms of sometimes we lose friends because they're not too sure what that means in terms of us watching them and what they may or may not be doing. What was that like for you telling your family that you'd made the decision to sort of pursue this career in policing? So I think my family had despaired of me by that stage, having gone to university inspired by the young ones. That was, uh, I may be showing my age there, some would need to Google that. <laughs> that was for an Arctic student uh, that lived in a really grotty flat, which pretty some, pretty much summed up my university experience as well. But uh, in seriousness, they were, they were quite happy. They were quite proud that I was doing that and getting a job in that world. Um, my family uh, have no history with policing, none whatsoever. Um, but they knew I wanted to do something active and uh, impactive. My sister's become a teacher. Uh, she's now a deputy head. So it's something there in the upbringing round about public service, I would guess, that, that parents are very proud. And the training. The training is something which is quite unique in itself in terms of trying to equip men and women who are often quite young in age, you know, still developing their sort of maturities and awareness of sort of social issues while also trying to teach the complexities of law. You know, it's a very complex sort of vocation in in needing to understand various different elements of what you can and can't do within the framework of the Office of Constable. How did you find both the theoretical elements and the practical elements of sort of this transition of, I would imagine, an 18 or 20-week course at a policing college? So in Scotland at that time, not now, but at that time they were split. So you went for Mm -hmm. 10 weeks uh, to start with, then were on the street for a year, then went back for eight weeks. I, I would prefer they didn't do that. Uh, I like the way it is now, that it's it's in one block. Um, mm-hmm. But um, for me, I enjoyed my time at Tilly Allen. 
you know, I'd, I'd done the, the TA when I was at um, uni, so I was used to a bit of discipline and uh, was reasonably fit, um, so that didn't didn't cause me any angst. The, the, the rote learning <laughs> round about the law, which I don't think so now, but we had, that was new to me, you know, coming from university. Um, mm. but, uh, but it worked and I got through it and, and I quite enjoyed um, my time at Tully Allen. Um, but comparing that to the street, and I think that's that's the same today as it was then. They're two different things, you know. It gives you it gives you a foundation to build on, but it's those first three to six months, I think, out in in reality when you stick to your first carpet, you know. That's that's when you know mm. you're a, you're a cop, you know. And <laughs> and they're offering you a cup of tea, and you're thinking, mm, <laughs> maybe I'd rather not. You know, that's that's when you know you're starting to become a police officer. So, you, did you would you have considered yourself have entered the policing college as maybe a young naive young man? And did you leave slightly different? Had it changed you? Had it adapted you? Changed your view on society at all? No, I'm quite a strong character. Uh, I, when I I don't know, but at the time I was a Guardian reader, so that probably says mm. quite a lot about me as a guy <laughs> coming out of well philosophy degree. I certainly raised a few eyebrows <laughs> at Tully Allen at the time, which was the home of the Daily Mail. Um, and, uh, and and no, and, and I wasn't bothered by that. And, and I've always been like that through my own, own service, in my whole service. I was my own man. Um, I have changed. I mean, I'm not going to deny that I've changed and uh, some, some edges knocked off. But uh, no, I, I don't think it changed me dramatically. I think my first couple of years out in the street... Um, certainly changed me far more than the training environment. As I said, I've spoken to a myriad of different officers from a variety of different police services in Australia, in the US, a lot from obviously the, the Met and other home county forces. What is Police Scotland like as an organisation? How big is it? What size is its geographical coverage? You know, and and independently, it's it's it is it's in an independent it's an independent police force away from the from from England. You know, it's its own country. What are the main sort of differences that we wouldn't probably overly know about as an organisation? So, so it's a massive organisation that has been stitched together from eight legacy forces and a number of legacy agencies. So we're 10 years into that now, so over 25,000 staff, population over 6 million, um, and we're still, not, we're still not there. You know, So if anyone wants to say to you it's a finished job, they're not telling you the truth. Um, the IT piece is coming together now, which obviously helps, but there's still a lot of legacy stuff, less talked about now, but there's a lot of legacy stuff in the background that still still affects the de definition of what Police Scotland is. I think it will take you know everyone from the legacy forces to be gone before you're really into Police Scotland per se um, as a culture on its own. One thing that was really in Scotland's favour though was that everyone used to go to Tully Allen. So all the eight forces, when you were recruited you went to Tully Allen. Um, for your detective courses, you know, your driving courses, everything, roads policing, you know, everything you went to Tully Allen. So it had that central nucleus, which is now the headquarters as well as the training environment. So there was some degree of commonality, but, but there was a lot that wasn't there. But it's come together a lot more. But the thing is, for me, there's things that have been stitched together in the organisation to suit legacy 
that perhaps don't actually work. So the divisions are, are in no way the same size. You know, the, you know, Glasgow is massive as a division compared to Dumfries and Galloway. Now, I'm not arguing that that gets changed in either of their favour or disfavour, but I'm just saying that's the way it is. So if you were to think of it, are the divisions all equal? No, they're not. They're, they're massively different. You know, Glasgow's bigger than most forces down in England and Wales. It's run by a cheap super. So uh, that creates its own difficulties. Talk about your sort of graduation. Must have been an incredibly proud day for your family and yourself in terms of sort of achieving that training and getting to the next step in what was going to be an incredible journey for a career. So you obviously have fond memories of that day? Yes, yes, yeah. Fantastic. White gloves. Lots of brown tape uh, rubbing off the ooze and uh, marching, uh, lots of marching. And at that time, we used to do traffic signals <laughs> as part of the parade, which uh, I think if you were to see now or, or find on, on uh, YouTube would look bizarre. But uh, no, a lot of happy memories of Tully Allen. And I'm still in touch with quite a lot of the guys I went with, you know, some of them whom I shared a flat with. At sometimes, um, so yeah, it, it was it was good. I've got no bad memories from my my time in training. And you you spoke about just a moment ago about you know realizing that you were a police officer when you work when you walk on your first sort of sticky carpet and you realize sort of <laughs> this job's going to provide some challenges. But was there a moment in the first sort of couple of years of sort of learning really the ropes and and following the lead of of generally a sort of tutor constable as to kind of the challenges that policing was going to present you either you know the first sudden death that you went to or the real first sort of domestic that you're trying to resolve and understand how you could sort of make things better not really having that much life experience when was that sort of that moment for you that you realized it was going to be at times challenging I think any young cop's got to acknowledge that when they go to a domestic at 22 years of age and you're trying to tell off a 40-year-old man um, mm. that you're not going to win. <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to be difficult, that. Um, I mean, there was a lot of drugs in my um, in my first two years. Uh, you know, it was a major problem where I was. There was an open-air drugs market in the, the shopping centre where I worked. It was quite violent. Um, so that was, you know, pretty pretty hairy at times i was kicked around the floor of a shopping center once uh, wow. yeah uh, that was not not a good experience that certainly um sharpened the the nerves um so i don't i don't know if there was a particular moment uh during that but there was a lot of moments i had a lot of action you know and that's not to, to rub any ego or that i just did I had a lot of action and acquired a terrible nickname that I never escaped from the rest of my service, which I'm still knowing that I threw out Police Scotland by today. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, that came from them. Uh, what is that nickname? That's Marty Mayhem. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 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 everyone knows me as that, you know, and, and that's just followed me. And, and Mayhem has followed me as well. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about, you know, like very early on in your service, you know, you're already attending really sort of significant incidents and it can happen to anybody. You know, the day you graduate, you could be confronted with anything. There's no sort of discrimination against any of this sort of stuff. If it's there, you've got to deal with it. Now, you recall this story about an extensive fire rescuing 14 people and presented with the force's highest award in 1996. Now, what an incredible accolade. What an incredible event to go to. Are you able to sort of talk us through that, that, that event and how you managed and dealt and overcame it? Yeah, so independent patrol time, you know, you're out on your own, um, thinking you're the, the king of the 
king of the scheme, for want of a better term. And uh, I remember driving through the Calders area in Wester Hills and uh, seeing a large crowd out in the street. That was the first thing I saw. So back in tunics then, very smart, uh, out of the car, hat on, sauntering up to see what's going on here then. Hello, hello, hello. And um, as I go through a crowd of about 60, 70 people, Try, you know, I'm trying to work out what's going on. I then noticed the large block of flats that's on fire, which is the cause of angst, and they uh, hear the screaming from within, and then realise everyone's looking at me, and the fire brigade aren't there. So on the, the radio to the control room, there's nothing logged. Nothing. Wow. And I realise, you know, very quickly, um, I'm going to have to do something about this now. So um, into the building, um, managed to empty the uh, the occupants as I saw them. Uh, smoke was terrible by the time. The whole roof was uh, aflame, and um, and people talk about bravery. I, I didn't think it was brave. It was just the right thing to do at the time. You do you don't think about it. was I scared? No, because it no. was just it was a policeman, and and it's what to do. And so ultimately, about fourteen folk out. Now, as I came out, and I was getting overcome by smoke at that stage. One of my colleagues, the night shift sergeant, Tom Clark, who's sadly deceased now, um, he heard me on the radio, jumped in a panda early for you know early in for a shift, came mm. down, and as I've come out one door of the block of flats, he's arrived at the other, looked up and seen a woman with her baby at the oh, window. Wow. And Tom, now remember the by now the building's well aflame. Tom has ran through the building and and it was totally on fire, kicked in the door. And rescued the woman and her baby. So, you know, it was incredible uh, bravery from Tom at that stage. And um, yeah, we ended up, I got the Lothian and Borders Police Board Award, you know, off the, the chair of the, the police board and the chief constable and that. My mum and dad got to come for the day and we got an award off of the Society for the Protection of Life from Fire. Um, but, uh, very hair raising, obviously. That's <laughs> <laughs> the, the boldness now. Uh, afterwards, but at the time, no, and, and, and I've been in a lot of sticky situations in my service, and I would say that when you're in them, you don't really think about it that much. It's afterwards. Um, or or if you're told the sticky situation's coming and you have the chance to think about it before it descends upon you, then then that can be different. I had that during the, in the run-up to a riot that happened. We, we talk about this... Um this natural phenomenon in the body called adrenaline, which generally blocks out those senses of fear and, you know, the fight and flight, you know, sort of um, responses to a an issue. And obviously, once that adrenaline subsides, you know, my next question is clearly going to be sort of after that event, you then have a, a, a moment to process what you've just been part of. And sometimes the hands can be a bit shaky and you need to debrief. And that's a massive part of, I suppose, policing when we look back over the last 20, 30 years in terms of sort of like the canteen cultures and going to have a, a half a pint with, the, with, with your colleagues after the shift is finished. That sort of stuff is now frowned upon. But back in the day, they were the support mechanisms that got you through those difficult jobs. Was that like it for that particular incident or, or, or in your early service? Um to be honest, for that instant, I think I was back to an office and looked after, and and mm. but I've had plenty of instances where it was what you know exactly what you're referring to, pre-trim, you know, uh, the, the, and and that informal debrief. The the one that really sticks with me is the year we nearly we nearly had a mass casualty event at Edinburgh's Hugmanay, which um, which is funny. The, the media coverage of that was never massive, 
but then we were lucky. So that was 1996 again, where um, there was an, that was before it was a ticketed event, and there was a massive crush at the foot of the mound. I don't know if you know Edinburgh well. No, I don't know. And no. there we were. So myself and colleagues were lifting people over railings that are about eight foot high, who were being crushed. Um, wow. And at the end of the night, once it was you know the event was over, it was the weirdest thing. The, the street was just covered in shoes. You know, it was just shoes everywhere. How airy. The pressure of the pressure of the crush had sucked them off of people's feet. And I really remember the debrief after that. You know, going back to Westerhales, everyone quiet in the van and, and people sitting just with their head in their hands at the at the mess room table that you're talking about until people started talking. Um it, it was uh, that that was that's one that sticks with me. It is so lucky we were we got away with it then. Is, is that part of the skill set which is developed throughout a policing career, the, the ability to compartmentalise incidents of trauma that you witness and understanding that they are part and parcel of the role of policing? I think you're, you're spot on there, Ollie. Um, most things I've dealt with don't, don't bother me and haven't stayed with me. You know, they're, they're done, they're gone. Mm. I think, being very honest with you, the only thing that really ever flares up for me, and it's I've not when I say that, it's just it's not like a... Medical thing, it's just you know, it comes to me, children. Mm. So, I've dealt with some pretty traumatic um, child murders and um, child deaths, and that does stick with you. Um, so, for anyone that's listening to this that comes into the service, you have to be prepared for that. And I've talked about that with probationers before as well that there are things that, that you know that you'll go to because you can go to anything, it's, it's you know, it's luck of the draw, or if you're a detective, you're very likely to get exposed with this. And, um, and I've had my fair share of that. And uh, it's not good, you know. And and, and and that's just. But that's that's when you take the warm card. You should know that that's a possibility. It's my view. Maybe that sounds old fashioned, right? But mm. somebody's got to deal with it. Mm. And, and and if you've got the warm card, then it's your turn. It's your turn. Equally, at the same time, during your young development of you know out in the streets as a, as a constable, sort of finding and establishing yourselves, is this unique ability to sort of. Um, gather sort of what we describe as informants and gather you know part of the success of policing is intelligence-led policing it's it's understanding who your crooks are who are those that are willing to give you a bit of information maybe to take the heat off them a little bit that was a skill that you started to develop very early on in your career how did that come about do you just enjoy the art of talking to individuals and being able to sort of garnish that information from them so i think that even goes back to school um so i I went, I went to the school of hard knocks <laughs> to a degree. Now, now my, my, my school, I've got you know, I've got nothing bad to say about it really, but there were some interesting characters there that uh, that I grew up with. All right, my my school covered the whole south of Glasgow for for the the way it was, and um, so I learned a lot. <laughs> in school um, <laughs> in addition to you know ultimately getting my qualifications and going to university you know that, that which wasn't normal you know so uh, so I had that background so when I joined the police I got you know what now it's not a fashionable term nowadays but I'm going to use it because I do I do Neds that's that's a Scottish term you know Don't, it, there's not there's not an equivalent in, in England Chav isn't the same it's two different things um, but I got I got that Right, I understood the, 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 the some of the driving factors and some of the the, the, the factors that back it, and um, that really assisted me in speaking to people. 
just I could just I, I like to think I can work on different levels, and that, that, mm. that don't mean to be you know that, that's not in any way to be dismissive of anyone. It's just you've got to pitch at the right level, and I was good at that. So once I got my head around the job, in I was pretty quickly recruiting formats. My first one, two-year service, guy carrying a table, folding table, up Westerhills Road. I'd seen him at a domestic the week before, stopped the car, I was on my own again, stopped the car and says, hey, you want a lift? Table in the back of the panda. And by the time I got him to where he was going, I'd recruited him. Didn't know what I was doing, but I'd recruited him. <laughs> and he was telling me about <laughs> drugs in the area. So, um, and it was, the, the, Ollie, this is our thing for people that are in, you know, post-ripper, they'll never get this, right? So all he told me where there was a large quantity of drugs and who was dealing. I went back, checked where I could, if that was correct, went to the JP, got a warrant in 10 minutes, <laughs> got a team together from, you know, from a variety of stations. My sergeants are obviously scratching their head going, hmm, not sure about this. <laughs> Did the house and we covered over a kilo. You know, and, and so that's... That was how easy it was back then to do it within a couple of hours. After that, the next day, up to the DI um, to sort of say what I'd done. <laughs> this is all right, I've done this. And, and he just goes, well done, son. And, uh, and and gives me a form to fill in about the chap who's provided me the information, come up with a pseudonym and that. You were then dispatched to headquarters to the detective chief super. You mm -hmm. went to his office. You, well, you made an appointment. You didn't just turn up. So his staff right. <laughs> sits you in uh, an anteroom. You then get wheeled in, and uh, he just takes a mickey out of you for about 10 minutes about who you are and what you've done. Then he says, how much do you want? <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> and, this, and this is how much to pay the informant. And he went in the safe, got the money, you signed for it, and you went and paid him. And, and it was that easy. Now, looking back now as, a super, you know, as an ex-super, what they had was an excellent talent spotting mechanism. Mm. You know, so that and that's what happened with me. That so it it wasn't as harem scarum as as I perhaps make out, you know, it, it seemed that way to me as a young guy. Um but there was no training. It was just you were either good at it and could do it or you couldn't. Um mm. and uh, you just did it, you did everything yourself. So you, you ran the informant, you got the intelligence, you got the warrant, you did the turn. And you paid. It was a one man band all the way through. And I think I had five on the go at one stage pre-ripper um, but I was just good at it it was something I was good at I just want to digress very quickly because I think the art of communication is something that's so critically important to the success of policing if you don't have the ability to communicate you're you're a going to get yourself into trouble and b you're not going to be able to get yourself out of trouble and I and I wonder you know you, you see a lot of headlines these days of you know incidences where use of force is being used and we've got tasers coming out and we've got batons coming out and we're doing all various different bits and pieces do you think i suppose as an observation are, are, are the generations that follow us into the job are they losing the ability to communicate effectively with those they come across because of the evolvement of social media as as, as an example okay I'll, I'll, I'll rewind that right back when i started in the job I wore a tunic and had a wooden stick down my trousers. That was it. And you were frowned upon for taking your baton out. When you were shirt sleeve order, you had to tuck away the leather strap so people didn't know it was there. You think of that approach to where we are now. We look like action man now, you know, compared to office man, I suppose, before. Now, I'm not saying that it's, it's wrong in any way. We've got the equipment and tools we have now, right? 
but something fundamental has changed along the way of how we approach incidents. And I think you're really onto something about communication. Now, maybe I had to communicate because I was so lightly protected, but I don't think so. I think it goes beyond that. You know, that that um that it was what was encouraged and really driven into you was your most important weapon was your mouth. And um for speaking, Molly, for speaking. Um <laughs> and <laughs> and um and and that's maybe gone, you know. And and the, you know, I'm not going to. There are terrible incidents recently, that, you know, of elderly people being tasered, and I wasn't there, so I'm not going to try to be the, you know, the the, the backstreet, gen, you know, back, the armchair general on these. But it sounds bizarre to me. And you know, you think back, well, how did we deal with that before? Because we didn't have tasers before, you know. And and would how would it have looked if we'd battened a 94 year old woman, you know? Um, yeah. And I'm not saying the guys were wrong that I've used that because I don't know. I wasn't involved in an incident. But the, the optics of it are terrible. You know, absolutely the threat and risk landscape has certainly changed i think obviously the you know that the, the i think what has equally changed is the is the is as i say the threat landscape and the risk towards police and and the respect to some extent you know that doesn't really exist anymore to the extent it did i think certainly when i was younger i'm you know i'm i'm no i'm, I'm still relatively young i hope but you know even when i was a young boy if i saw the police there was element of respect there whereas you don't see that these days there's that i'll agree with you there right but see the level of violence uh, presented to the police it was far worse far worse when I was younger in service than it is now but uh, my, my sergeant got stabbed when I had two years service I was with him in a house so you know that's that's not new the, these things have happened you know I think it was worse before well that's me. so you moved quite quickly into the area of sort of the detective arena you know there's often two trains of thought you're either going to stick with um you know, uh, I, I can't remember how Bob Broadhurst described this, the sort of hard tops, you know, or <laughs> you can either join my gang or you can join their gang. And you went off into the CID fairly young in service. What was that experience like working with sort of seasoned detectives back in the early 90s? I can imagine it would have been fascinating to be part of that, that era of policing. Oh, yeah, completely. It's funny, I bumped into my old DI, my first wow. DI, uh, just the other week. I've not seen him for about 10 years. And uh, we were just chatting, and I said, do you remember the first things you said to me? He says, no. He says, you said to me, you're not to answer the phone. I phoned you're, <laughs> you're not to answer the phone until we tell you you're allowed to. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been in planers and everything by this stage, but this was me. I was in the CID office, you know, and, and I was an aide at that time, and I wasn't even allowed to answer the phone. Um, but that was that was the culture, yeah. you know, and it was, it's not like this, it's not. It was very, uh, it was, I suppose, a bit elitist, you know, and, and seen that way. And I was seen as a bit of a bit unusual in there with four years service. Um, maybe they'd seen bosses, hopefully the bosses had seen something in me that, that they thought was worth bringing on. But I was working with guys with 20 years more service than me, you know, went on camping trips with them and that. And, and reflecting back over my service now, and I know we're going to talk about the later stages, um, you know, further on in the podcast, that affected me and caused me issues later on. That I was really schooled in policing as an art, mm. right? And I think I caught the very end of something that doesn't exist anymore, as far as I can see, where, you know, people talked about street craft and such. And if you talk about that now, people look at you, you've got three heads, 
you know, but the good cops, when I started, got this. I think The Wire covers it quite well as well, where they talk about good police. Mm. If you've watched, you know, that that's just alien to people now. Um, and talking, they talk in very methodic and scientific terms about policing now, rather than it being an art. And you say you used your gut for something, you, you're going to find yourself thrown out the room. You know, whereas in the past, people respected that. It's particularly if you were successful. It doesn't matter if you're going to be successful now. They're just not interested. I always thought that was such an important part, you know, along with communication being, you know, once you've got years of experience under your belt, that gut feeling, when you knew, when you walked into a pub, you could sense an atmosphere or you could sense something was, that for me really drove a lot of my decision-making processes as to kind of, I think we need a couple more numbers here. Something doesn't feel quite right. And I think I'm going to preempt this. And these days... We seem to re. I know we seem to be worried about having those gut feelings that something may go awry. Correct, spot on, and I think that all comes back to as well with souped control and autonomy away from front end officers, mm. you know, and we'll pour over the decision making. Goes back to something I said to you earlier about the tasers. I wasn't there, right? So if 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 the guys were coming in, guys and girls were coming in and justifying that incident to me, and I understood it, what they had done, what they were faced with on the street at that time then you've got to go with that but we're not like that anymore we you know we we're all we've, we're all faced with nine o'clock juries rather than remembering back to what it was like standing in the rain at three o'clock in the morning making those decisions mm. but ollie quite a lot of the people who are judging these decisions have never stood in the rain at three o'clock in the morning and had to make them that's the problem with the police today or one when did you when did you get the bug or sort of this appetite to lead individuals, to start to, to to have more accountability and responsibility to be able to affect some of the changes and the courses of actions of investigations. Because you attain the rank of sergeant within nine years' service. Like me, you know, under 10 years, that's quite a move. You know, I got promoted to the rank of sergeant under 10 years, which I think is, is quite impressive um, in terms of being able to show some of those sort of characteristics which are so important for successful leaders in policing. But for you, when did that come about? So I... I um, took an intelligence entry, 1E4 entry, um, about someone bringing heroin into Edinburgh and developed that into a three-force operation where we recovered, recovered multi-kilos from a guy that had been in the French Foreign Legion, right? So um, that, that was a really successful operation. And as a DC, I developed that from nothing. To, wow. to this, you know, and and uh, Ensis involved as existed at the time, and and really successful operation, and and that that was when I knew, yeah, you know, you're capable of mm. of doing more things here, and I got put into operational planning off the back of that from the CID, you know, from Drugs and Major Crime into there to do large scale drugs operations. Now, so we were hitting over twenty houses at a time, and I was really planning that. Um, now, that worked well for me for, you know, inspiring me towards promotion and leading. Destroyed my, uh, my faith in the war on drugs. But that's <laughs> another story. <laughs> so let's talk about, you know, you, you talk here as a DS, regularly taking up the position as Deputy SIO, Senior Investigating Officer, and working on, you know, murders, rapes and kidnappings, you know, um, they're quite challenging investigations, very complex. There's a number of layers. There's often multiple witnesses and crime scenes, primary and secondary to deal with, and all these sorts of 
technical issues that one has got to think of because ultimately your job is to collate the evidence to a point where it's admissible in court so that you can get a, a charging decision if you're reliant upon a sort of Crown Prosecution Service to approve a charge and then take something to court successfully and ultimately hold somebody accountable. Equally looking after victims and witnesses, how was that whole experience of sort of running quite significant complex investigations? It was, it was you know, probably uh, some of the best times in my service. You know, it was um, really rewarding in terms of, you know, the captures you got ultimately mm -hmm. um, developing uh, guys and girls coming into the CID as well. Um, there's nothing better than, than a successful interview as well. Um, nothing better. And I don't mean just getting an admission. I mean a mm. successful interview. So a mm. big thing in Scotland is we're not there to get, we're not there to, to get a confession. We're there to get the truth. Mm. And uh, and I and I always remembered that and I and the again I don't think it's enforced enough now. Big thing with the CID that you had to ask yourself was, is it fair? Is what you are doing fair? And I really tried to live by that, um, and hope I did. You know, and, and I never had any problems with it at court. Touch wood that's not come back to bite me with any of my cases. Um, but you know, to come back to your point about the complex nature of it, loved it. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. Worked in some massive cases down in Merseyside a lot um, for one that was involving drugs and the kidnapping, and um, exposed to a lot of stuff at that stage um, that really was what I wanted to do in the police. You know, it mm. was um, it was fantastic stuff, and and I look back on it very, very fondly. And when you're dealing with these, you know, we, we spoke about earlier, you know, the challenges of dealing with some of the more sort of confronting investigations involving children. Uh, you know, and and there are certainly others which are equally as challenging I believe also but when you've got a family at home how do you manage sort of the stresses and the sort of debriefs and being able to to share with loved ones often sort of some of the difficulties or is it something again you compartmentalize and try and shield them from I, I mean I hope it never leaked out to my kids they, 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 they were that young that they don't even remember now when I was a detective you know so, mm -hmm. so they don't really remember it um, my wife knew when I dealt with something pretty horrible um, but I had a good pal uh, I've got a lot of good pals though, but I had a really good pal outside the job nothing at all to do with the job that uh, I occasionally after I dealt with something pretty horrific would go and meet up with and uh, maybe have a couple of pints wouldn't go into the incident can't you know it's confidential but uh, but whatever's out open source you know they, they know what I've been dealing with and it's just good to, to have that person outside the job to bounce off mm. and and you know again for anyone that's thinking of coming into the police uh, and I always say this to folk when they're young in their service stay in touch with your friends outside that you can trust um, because it's good to keep an anchor outside the cynicism and outside the dark world that sometimes we walk in the job um, and keep that, that perspective of, of the, the outside world did you lose strength? Did you lose friends throughout your career because of what you were doing? Nah, not really. Nope. Um, I've still got a good, very good circle of friends from outside the police, mainly uni friends. They're still as daft as mm. they were then. As I go back to the young ones, you know, the toga party days. <laughs> um, no, and and uh, I've got a lot of good mates in the job that I'm keeping in touch with now. I'm retired, um, and no, I would say not. I would say that uh, it managed to keep that balance. Let's talk about one of the biggest challenges that faced uh, the UK as a whole. It was very London-centric to start with, but certainly uh, 
grew as the days gathered pace. In 2011, um, the what was now described as the lawful police shooting of Mark Duggan in Tottenham and Haringey um, uh, after a surveillance operation and, 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 and police dealing with that issue caused levels of public disorder across London that had never been seen before unless you look back in history at sort of um, Brixton riots and uh, the, the farm riots and etc. So, you know, they, they, but this was on a scale that we'd never seen before. London was in effect on fire and it was spreading up the country. Now, a lot of people don't realise how much mutual aid came down the, down the M1 and, and down the motorways to support the Metropolitan Police and, and policing as a whole across other forces. Could, you know, you are heavily involved in sort of the contingency planning and response to, you know, Police Scotland really coming to the rescue and, and helping to, to, to bring things back to sort of a, a normal levels of normality. Could you talk us through sort of the impact 2011, those sort of antisocial incidents had on Police Scotland and their involvement? So it was still policing in Scotland at that time. So it was still the independent police forces. Right. Um, I had had a bizarre promotion to uniform inspector uh, in ACPOS, the Association of Chief Police Officers in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And a small job within that was the mutual aid manager for Scotland. And essentially that was a job that, you know, I was in a packet. As far as people are concerned, breaking open an event of emergency and the emergency hadn't really occurred. So what I was there to do was actually organise a mutual aid for the Olympics the following year. So I was a couple of months into post. Had an understanding of things though because I'd been in the fit team for the Met during the G8. So I'd been in three riots um, way back in 2005. Um, so I had some understanding. I wasn't a big public order guy or anything though. Um, so I was in post when the riots happened in London and at first, you know, how's this going to affect us? Not at all. And then as you said, Ollie, it got worse. And so the contact came from um, the uh, PNIC, as it was at the time, um, now NPOC down in England, to start looking at Scottish contingency. Um, so that involved me liaising with the president of ACPOS, I think Kevin Smith, and uh, various other senior officers. And as the heat got into this situation, there was a meeting convened when we were actually asked to supply aid and given, uh, you know, given an indication of when that would be. And I remember very, very clearly Kevin Smith, who was president of ACPOS at the time, saying to his colleagues, our chief constables, we have a moral imperative to help our colleagues in England. <laughs> um, wow. Because there was concern about us denuding our resource you know, sending our public order out with Scotland, and um, and Kevin was very, very clear that uh, you know there, there was a duty, and, and and they all agreed. You know, to their credit, they all agreed. So the resources were mustered for them um, for to be ready for an assembly. We still didn't have a green light. Um, that took a, that. I mean, I was in the office all the time, and I'd, I'd corralled all my ACPOS staff who had nothing to do with public order and talk. But everyone was pitching in to help. You know. We'd, whiteboards and we were phoning garages to get vans with their wheels back on you know public order carriers <laughs> and everything so it was we were scrabbling cereals together from different areas it, it was it was chaotic but organized chaos mayhem again and um <laughs> and then we were going to be waiting to the next day so i i, I booked into the hotel next to that post building in holland street in glasgow and then was phoned during the night that the the riots had spread as, as history indicates 
and um, we were asked if we could supply that night. We said, yeah, but they'll come as a serial um, as they arrive. And, and the decision was made not to send. And we arrived, you know, we came down the next day. So, um, you know, looking back, was that the right decision? Probably not. Um, wasn't ours to make. That was, we were, we were being requested. But certainly a big fundamental decision I was involved in that, um, that could have went another way. What's the legalities of bringing that sort of aid across? Is there is there a big issue there in terms of police powers, responsibilities? No, it's just understanding. So, um, so when, you, when the chief constable um, requests the aid, then they become responsible, you know, in law for the actions of those officers who are acting within their um, force. So there's some legislation that's very different. We don't pace in, in Scotland, you know. It's, we're, we're a lot closer to pace now than we were when I started, mm. um, very much common law based, which we still were. Um, when when I started out, well, not there now; it's, it's moved on. Um, but uh, but that so officers had to be briefed, and we did up briefing packs for them, and had people dispatched to the the centres to hand that out. I should maybe just mention, in terms of the legislation, so that this is a difference in Scotland that I practice as a detective. When you detain somebody under called sec, something called Section Fourteen, you had them for six hours in Scotland. So the only thing they got with a lawyer was a phone call by the desk sergeant to the lawyer to say they were in custody. They had no access. So the police had that suspect for six hours to question them. But at wow. the end of the six hours, they walked or they got arrested and then charged. So that that's a, that was a fundamental difference in Scotland. It's gone now. It's gone now. You arrest on suspicion. Now. But um, very, very different in the past. And I digress. So. I wanted to talk about one of these sort of more challenging issues, sort of like an international matter, really, where you're dealing with sort of visiting tourists into Scotland, you know, uh, and, 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 and on this occasion, it's Taiwanese child that had a tragic accident and fell and was killed as a result. And obviously family immediately come over to Scotland to to better understand the circumstances, you know, obviously wanting to work out repatriation. But equally, there's the religious context to some, obviously, some of these issues. And, and you t obviously, off air, we spoke about this and quite incredible sort of response from family in terms of the cultural sensitivities of trying to obviously sort of manage expectations around kind of what happens when when these issues occur and, and how the police have to investigate these, how the coroner has to have an understanding as to kind of what has happened and equally trying to meet the expectations of families. Talk us, talk us through that event and how significant it really was. OK, so, so the boy fell to his death from Salisbury Crags. Um, in, in Edinburgh, uh, misadventure you would call it with with his with his um, with his cohort of, of Taiwanese school children on exchange, um, and uh, the, you know we quickly ascertained although we had to bring in interpreters there was quite a lot of distress among the kids we ascertained there was nothing suspicious in it but someone had to deal with it and, and I was hit for that um, so the the family were in touch we got them through the Taiwanese consulate and such and they travelled immediately to Scotland and um, we quickly learned though that their 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 sect of Buddhism had pretty um, pretty unusual I think that's a fair term unusual uh, concerns round about the manner of death uh, and the, the what happened to the cadaver post mortem um, affecting reincarnation. 
So um, we, through our diversity department, tracked down two Buddhist monks um, in, in Edinburgh, the Buddhist temple, who explained to us, yes, that wasn't their sect of Buddhism, but they understood where this came from, and that the family would be very distressed about how the boy died, the fact he died away from home, you know, uh, um, in, in an area of believers, and also the, the fact that a postmortem would just be a nightmare for them, because it would affect you know his his future soul so that i had to go meet them at the airport off the plane uh, this grieving family a 12 year old boy is dead and uh, they, they came with some colleagues from their work so we'd organized a room in, in edinburgh airport were really good about this we'd organized a room so i had to explain to them the manner of their son's death but then i had to explain what was going to happen next in terms of the postmortem that was being insisted on by the procurator fiscal who deals with deaths in Scotland. Um, so you can imagine that was very distressing, but I'm glad we got it out of the way at the start, you know, so they, they knew what was coming. The father wanted to see where the boy died, so uh, I remember going up in my suit, in the uh, up on Salisbury Crags to show him where he'd fallen from and, and where he landed. And from there we took the, the, to see the wee boy and, and, and they cleared out his room, we'd left everything as was, I mean even swimming trunks were still in the sink in, in the room, you know, from, from being swimming his homework and everything still lying out. Pretty traumatic, you know, and, and, and the body itself, pretty traumatic. Uh, from there though, this is where the requests really, you know, went pretty far. I'm pretty glad that I did everything that we were asked of. Um, first thing was that they wanted to perform a ceremony at the site of death. For them, they summoned the soul. Um, so there was, you know, a monk, prayers, burning, tossing of coins. Um, and they summoned his soul into a piece of paper which they put inside a frame and his cousin who'd been on the school trip as well was then responsible for that so he had to carry the soul in the, the rucksack uh, for the remainder of the trip and then for the post-mortem they brought monks from London and at first they wanted to be in the post-mortem saying specific prayers as the um, pathologist was carrying out specific pieces of work on the body we explained that was just not going to happen there was no way that was going to happen. We couldn't do that. But we made a compromise where they were in the adjacent room and I was going backwards and forwards and telling them exactly what was going on. Um, and ultimately we had a cremation uh, in Scotland and they took the, the, you know, the, the remains back with them to Taiwan. And when they got back there, they burned the piece of paper which released the soul amongst believers, is, 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 is how we put it. Now that's very wow. different to, to the culture mm. we have here. Mm. But I'm glad I did it because any solace I could give that family was the right thing to do. Incredible story. And I think it just goes to the point of the sort of variety and the challenges and sort of the, yeah, the sort of the skill sets required to be able to meet the different needs and expectations of different members of the community, both based here in the UK, because we've come an we've become an incredibly diverse society um, across many different demographics, which requires us to have many different understandings of, you know, we're not always going to get it right. We're not always going to understand particular issues, but equally we can do our very best to make particular, you know, very ordinary situations just that little bit better. And, and people will remember those interactions for the remainder of their lives. Mm -hmm. and, and I've been, throughout my service and, and my writing, you know, I'm very much a law enforcement guy. The police are there to, to solve crime, but that's not all. You know, I think we've gone too far into some other areas, but certainly about looking after the families of deceased, you can't do enough. I mean, it was ancient Greeks' view was that you could tell how civilised 
you know, a, a group of people were by how they treated the dead. And um, and I'm a big believer in that, that that's a duty of the police. That that's and I, I use I don't use that word lightly. That's a duty, Ollie, to to try and try and make things in some way better for those poor people. They've never been to Scotland, and I hope they left. That you know their impression is their son died. Well, I hope I I, I maybe softened that a wee bit. 2015, promoted to the rank of Chief Inspector, you were the area commander for Scotland's largest town of Paisley, during which time reducing serious violence by 40% and NHS demand by 50% during this tenure. Now, I'm, I'm sort of topically wanted to focus around not only the key responsibilities of an area commander and what that brings with it in terms of sort of managing sort of morale, performance, the way people present themselves, the, you know, your accountability to senior officers at the rank of superintendent and above. But more importantly, because it's quite topical at the moment, the NHS, reducing NHS demand by 50%. Now, the, the impact, I appeared yesterday on GB News talking about the impact of policing services responding to the needs and expectations of mental health calls for service. Is that what you're talking about in that point in terms of the reduction of NHS services around mental health? No, it wasn't just mental health. It was across the board. Mm. Um, so the two things are linked, right? I needed to increase my resource to deal with the violence problem that I inherited. So the, the day I took up post, we were on the front page of the Daily Express and some other newspapers for being the most violent <laughs> subdivision in Europe. Uh, so you could go and Google that and say, "Oh God, he's, he's telling you know he's right." It was that murder rate was um, was was horrendous, and and where I was thinking, Paisley can be a violent place. It's a lovely place too, but it can be violent, you know. And I think anyone that's lived there or worked there would would, would say that. I mean, anywhere can be violent, but Paisley was at that time. Um, so I had I had to get more resource, and and my cops were getting sued all the time to NHS incidents. So I got research commissioned into that, that I looked at, I bespoke, you know, created, because command and control was no use for it, and, and could see that these incidents just weren't relevant to the police. A lot of them were nothing to do with the police, or um, it was a complete overreaction, you know. Um, so I met the director of the hospital, who in turn got me a meeting with consultants and registrars, I went to that moan. <laughs> that was maybe unwise. <laughs> uh, so it was like, it was into a bear pit. It really was, and and they just weren't used to meeting a senior police officer. There was no contact. There was there was no senior staff uh, contact. And this situation had, had taken years, Ollie, to get to this point. And I was the first one to go in and say, "Look, this isn't on." And I got it really tight to start with. Who are you? You know, and, and being a doctor, but not that sort of doctor. <laughs> you get how doctors can be a bit supercilious. Well, th that was what I encountered. But I'll tell you this, to their credit, as I got my point across and explained to them the impact their most junior of staff were having on police resources, the penny eventually dropped during the conversation. I ended up getting invited to loads of stuff and, and an international conference off the back of it. They do like me, or they pretend to. Um, and and it reduced demand. So it was like missing person calls. It was um, you know in relation to dealing with patients. Uh, you know it was it was all sorts of things. The mental health piece is wider than this. This is beyond hospitals. This is this is out in the community. And I've written about this yesterday. Where I'm talking about years. Care in the community was a policy of the Thatcher government in the 1980s, which led to the closure of large institutions and a divestment of funds to local community-based health practice. Health, 
with the word in there. Mm. Help. Mm. That's where the money went. These institutions closed and the funding was redistributed. None went to the police. But what has happened is that the police have become an exponentially rising responder to these incidents, which we're not trained for. It's not appropriate that we go to most of them. And we were never provided funding for this. So when people say, oh, take the money off the police to deal with mental health, hang on a minute. 40 years ago, the funding was distributed elsewhere within health. Go back and look at that and ask where your money's being spent. Now, I'm not getting away from the fact that mental health problems have probably increased during that time. Yeah. But that has to be part of the discussion, that this has arisen from a policy within health in the 1980s that the police had no part in. And um, and and the police need to be respected for what they are. And in my view, go back to a lot of core business. I completely agree with Mark Rowley on this. Completely agree that that's what should be happening. But it's not an overnight solution. If a problem takes forty years to emerge, it's not going to be resolved by August. No, and I think that was probably one of the biggest points that was made to me yesterday is that this deadline of the 31st of August, 1st of September is too soon for sort of policymakers to come up with an alternative strategy to implement the necessary resources to kind of backfill because, and this is the problem I think as sort of police leadership teams and executive leadership teams have allowed policing, you know, and we have, I think, just allow policing to become a sort of band-aid fix for where there are social holes to fill. And and that could be, as you quite rightly point out, the, the classic low-priority check on welfare is the people that go AWOL from wards once they've been checked in or the hours spent in hospital wards looking after someone because there's nobody there to facilitate sort of the transition between law enforcement to medical practitioner. So it's a it's a fascinating debate. And like you, I'm very much in support of Sir Mark Rowley's announcement. I think it's a bold decision. I think it's a brave one. And I think probably for me... The critical part of this is going to be empowering sergeants and inspectors to make that judgment call as to what jobs they go to and what jobs they don't go to. And as long as they're backed up and supported, I think we're in a good place. But that, for me, is going to be the defining moment. Would you agree with that? Correct. Completely agree. As long as we don't get into the situation of rationale policing, Mm. where the, the sergeant or the inspector is having to write a war and peace yeah. as to why they're not justify going, a decision that, that you know because they're being hauled over the coals by the nine o'clock jury the next day for something that goes wrong you know so i think you have to set all i think you have to set parameters this, is good. this was way wider than mental health this mm. is all incidents for me mm-hmm. you give people you we pay people a lot of money as a sergeant inspector right mm. what we should be doing is giving them parameters to work in and thereafter if they're in those parameters with a decision they make where something goes wrong, well, do you know what? We gave them those parameters. We maybe need to review them or we need to say, well, with the information they had at the time, they did the right thing and we need to stand up for them. But this comes back to the level of scrutiny there is of policing now and uh, whether whether there would be an appetite to, to go back to that sort of empowerment at the frontline decision making. You know? uh, reading here, you know, you've been part of some sort of major project development across scotland you know the introduction of mobile technology across police scotland um with the project that you led on being described by scottish government auditors as public sector leading that must be incredibly sort of a triumphant moment of an accolade and support for something that you led on you must be incredibly proud of those sort of statements yeah it was a great thing to be involved in um, I got some great trips out of Ollie as well, to be honest, <laughs> 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 round, round the country that I live in. But they, they, they were work-related. 
Um, but fantastic. The, the thing was, it was an easy sell because we had nothing in Scotland. And we went, this, this is to the credit of the Scottish Police Authority and the executive mm. in Police Scotland. They went for top of the range in terms of what we equipped officers with and what it could do. You know, so we went from zero to hero, I suppose you could say, for a cliche in there. And the cops really liked it. And it went down well. It was an easy sell. It was a good bit of kit. And uh, and it's a project I'm very, very proud of. And it took up three years of service. So, you know, it's more than a tenth of, of how long I was in. But it was a good one. And I got a lot out of it. I got a lot out of it. We talk about quite often when one is coming towards the end of their service or they can see sort of the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the career coming to closure, that's important to sort of some people to sort of establish your sort of capabilities outside of policing, get ready for that transition, because it's not always an easy one to make in terms of policing really does become part of our DNA. And often some people have described it as, as almost like a bit of a grieving process when leaving policing. Now, you finished up at the rank of superintendent. You were overseeing criminal justice services division in terms of some of the projects there. Was that a good transition was that a good final posting for you to start making and start having those thoughts about leaving stepping away from the real operational decisions and more of the policy work um so day to day i was working from home you know and that's what happened during covid as well mm. so that made it easier i wasn't a police station you know around cops every day however no i, I didn't hang up my my hat i was still being a football match commander I was a PIM, I was doing on call, so I was still doing operational stuff. But I suppose, was I doing as much stuff as I had? No, because I was not in a police station. Mm. Um, or not in the pl- I still had an office in a police station, but it's like Precinct 13, there was nobody there. Um, <laughs> you know, so it was, um, and the, those that were there are great folk, by the way, in case they listen to this. But there wasn't very many of them, and I didn't see them often. Um, but, uh, but yeah, maybe it did. But my last day, I was match commander at a Celtic game. And that, that was a good way to finish for me, you know. And even that, yeah, it's a big finish, isn't it? Match commander at a Celtic game, not Celtic and Rangers, because I imagine that would be an ominous fixture, but um, obviously a great way to go out in terms of finishing operation on something that you'd love to do. Were you were you ready at 28 years and three months to, to, to close that chapter on your life? So I think, you're, I don't know if your colleagues down south will be aware of what happened in Scotland. They probably will. Um, so something called the commutation cap was removed, which meant the because of the pension changes, there was no real financial incentive to stay. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd 20, over 28 years service, I could maybe have got myself out to a division for my last year, you know, and, and that would have been good. I would have enjoyed it. But, you know, I'm still young. I was 50 and it just seemed to, to fit at the right time. It was time to move on. So I had some year in 2022, I got promoted, um, I turned 50, I got my PhD, you know, I, I went to New York, which was nice as well. I, I dealt with the NYPD, I did a presentation for them that year, that wasn't as big as the other things I suppose. But um, but it was a good year, you know, I crammed a lot into that year and it seemed to make sense just to go. I've got sort of two big questions I wanted to ask you. The first one being very recently, Sir Ian Livingston, QPM, uh, soon to leave Police Scotland. You know, you've spent 28 years and three months in the organisation. You've seen a lot. You've been around a lot. Often we use this question, I've asked other guests this, in terms of this 
this term institutionally racist and, and commissioners and Samark Rowley being one who's not prepared to adopt that saying because of the, I believe, the connotations, the different meanings it represents. I think more broadly, from my perspective, I think the impact it has on morale across the department in terms of is that labelling individuals. I've often asked, is policing more in, more institutionally incompetent than it is institutionally racist? And I wonder whether you had any examples or whether you whether you agreed, first of all, with the label that Police Scotland is institutionally racist or whether or not there are examples where it's actually more institutionally incompetent. So I'm fortunate that in my service, I have never worked with a racist officer. You know, I, I never have. It's, it's just not something... That's that that has happened to me. That that's not to say there aren't racist people in the police. But what I'm saying is I have never worked with one, um, or had one work for me, or worked for one. Um, in terms of my own behaviour, you know, I've I like to think that uh, I have championed diversity throughout my service and agree with the principles uh, that, that the service seeks to espouse in that area. And, and I've mentored uh, officers from minority backgrounds, some of whom I hope are listening to this and going, well, I did. That's, that's true. You know, and, and helped them along, along with others. So that, that's the thing. Without fear or favour, I suppose, is the old saying. But, you know, an example for myself is I had an allegation of um, racism uh, to investigate, um, which was reported as a grievance, which is unusual, and I had to confirm that with PSD. And uh, it was quite an involved investigation. But what I did there was I did everything to the letter of the policy, um, conducted the investigation, you know, soundly, as an ex-detective would. You know, it was against other senior officers. And um, ultimately, my finding was this was incompetence. To come to your point, Ollie, there was no evidence of racism. There was evidence of incompetence. There was no evidence of racism. But it went to an employment tribunal. And um, at that, it, they agreed with me that it was incompetence, not not racism. So to, to return to your point, I suppose policies are written by people. They're, they don't exist on their own. Quite the same as an institution doesn't exist without the people in it. The Roman army are no longer on Hadrian's Wall, okay? Because the, the, the individuals who constituted the Roman army left Britain, you know? They've left marks, but they're not here. And in, so the Roman army doesn't exist without Roman soldiers, for, for want of a term, you know, to try and sort of crystallise where I'm coming from. Do I think that policies in themselves can be racist? Well, unless they're stating racist intent, I, I, I really struggle with that. And I'm no dafty, Ollie, right? I, you know, I've got a PhD. Uh, I'm not saying that to, to big myself up, I'm just saying, you know, for credibility. I, so I've thought a lot about this. And um, I'm not I'm not someone who ascribes to, to these these views. Um, I, the, the, the officers I worked with, to a man and a woman, I never worked with a racist. And, and the, the, the organisation itself is constituted by these individuals. Now, I've been out for six months, so maybe things have changed. I very much doubt it, right? But um, but I don't recognise that that definition of my organisation, and that is not to be defensive. And I'll caveat it: I believe it is based on a report that is not in the public domain as yet 
from the reporting that I've read. So I'll need to see that and see what's it. Because I, I can only speak on what I've found. And I'm speaking from what I've seen. But it might be that Sir Ian is, is privy and is likely privy to information I haven't seen, which he's made his decision on. But for me, unless, you know, unless something dramatic changes from what I read then. The other big question I wanted to ask you is something that's been... Um been in debate for for quite a few years now there was a referendum around it and we're talking about scottish independence and i'm and i'm keen for this as a as, as a chap that's down south here and sees the sort of the 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 gesturing the posturing the arguments the frustrations in the westminster between uh, scottish ministers and, and and the conservative party and the prime minister down here i was intrigued to get your view as to whether you believe scotland should be independent or whether it is a better you know it's a, it's a better country in terms of being part of the union so i was in the british army i um, i went to portsmouth university i went to lancaster university in addition to Stirling and St Andrews. Um, I was at the Aston Villa game on Sunday, which was very good. <laughs> me, anyway. <laughs> and my son, who's Aston Villa. My friends mainly live in London, and I'm down there quite frequently. I'm British. Uh, and, and, and I'm Scottish, you know. Um, so, for me, I, I, and it goes back to the, maybe it goes back to something we talked about earlier. We might not just have a moral imperative to help the English. We might have a moral imperative to stick with them and look after them. Maybe we do all that, you know? <laughs> yeah, your knight, knight in shining armour that always comes to the rescue. Maybe we are half blue face, you know, these days, as opposed to as opposed to the relationships we had in the past. I, I just, you know, this is me very much speaking as an individual. Right? This has nothing to do with the police, but me speaking as an individual, saying these things, and... and I, I think we're better together, and I know that was a cliche from the past, but I sort of, I, I can't see past it now. I think that uh, the economic case, and I'm no economist, but the economic case just isn't there. Um, that I'm, I'm to be persuaded otherwise, and I think most sensible people would would, would see that needs to be if it, even those that are supporters. You need to give them some sort of sense of how this would work, and I just don't see it. I just can't see. It. You've been the recipient. You'll get me mugged now. You'll get you'll get me done over. <laughs> well, I hope not. You know, I'll be checking on your welfare in the days to come. But I wanted to, well, going on this next line, I, I think you'll be fine. You've been you're the recipient of three accommodations for bravery. You may get a fourth off the back yeah. of that statement. <laughs> but what I wanted to cover off on is that often, and I talk about this in previous episodes and we've touched on it today, the unsung heroes behind every successful police officer, be they male or female, is the family dynamic and the family support that sits behind them to allow them to do the job they do to the best of their ability. It's the wives, the husbands, it's the sons, the daughters, it's the brothers, it's the family, you know, because it is a job and a vocation that life kind of almost lives around because of the shift work, because of the demands, because of the on-call, because of the football matches, because of the antisocial behaviour happening elsewhere that we're called upon to help with, it is a very demanding role. And I imagine that your family is no different in terms of the support they've provided you over the last 28 years and three months. Would I be right? Spot on, yeah. So I've always been a cop for my wife. I met my wife in 2000. Um, and my kids have always known me as a police officer and um, they've always been great. Uh, my mum and dad as well, 
um, fantastic all the way through my sister yeah so um, they've always been there for me and uh, hopefully although they weren't from home but I, I think my wife would Maybe, but no, I, I've been very lucky in that regard, you know, very, very lucky with the support that I've had and that they listen to my stories. And that is the important part, and we're incredibly honoured to have listened to your story uh, this afternoon. So, listen, on behalf of myself and, and everybody that listens to this podcast, thank you ever so much for your 28 years and three months of service. Thank you ever so much for the work you've put in right across Police Scotland in terms of uh, the sacrifices that you've made to make hopefully lives of many, many people slightly better in terms of them looking back on memories and knowing that you've made a choice. So, And thank you ever so much for sharing your story on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Ollie. It was an absolute pleasure. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence. This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk.